Hi, this is Oscar Mike Radio. The missile launcher is loaded. Now stand by for the public service announcement. And then it is Mission in Flight. VA Health and Benefits, official mobile app for VA Health and Benefits. VA's official mobile app is a smarter, more convenient way for veterans to manage and carry their VA Health and Benefits information. One veteran notes, I went into my local hardware store and logged into my VA mobile app. A quick glance at my phone showed them I was a veteran and I was able to get the veteran discount without any paperwork. It was easy and convenient. Download the app via the Apple Store at https colon forward slash forward slash apple dot co forward slash three uppercase j lowercase b lowercase k nine uppercase o lowercase l or download the app via the Google Play Store at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3 uppercase q 5 lowercase q 9 uppercase l 5 Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio. I'm your host. My name is Travis. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hubazoo Network. You can find out more on Hubazoo.com. I want to thank my sponsors, Joyce Asak of Asak Real Estate, Army National Guard veteran Mark Holmes of Reapers Detailing Power Washing, and my supporters, Semper Savage Salad Dressing, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company. Last shout out, last shout out, I promise. A big shout out to the Veterans Brotherhood Motorcycle Club. Let me get this right. There we go. Who gave me this hoodie and had a wonderful breakfast this last weekend to raise money for veterans uh, nonprofits in the South Shore area of Massachusetts. JK, Lunch Pail, Rhino, uh, you know, all you guys, Connor, thank you very much. I'm just having a lot of fun with Oscar Mike Radio. This show will probably drop in January of 2023. That's just how mission and flight we are. And it's just getting better. I get reached out to on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram from Spencer Emch. And he had this book. And the book is called Time of Flight. And it's about helicopters, which I love. Army aviation, which even as a Marine, I'm going to tell you, Spencer, I love. And, you know, the Apache A64 longbow, which I'm like, yeah, how we used to practice shooting you all down. <laughs> like, yes, 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 and yes. So I am pleased to introduce Spencer Imsch, uh, Army veteran, Army aviation, Army pilot, war officer, officer to Oscar Mike Radio. Sir, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Hey, thanks, brother. It's nice being on here. Absolutely, absolutely. So, first of all, thank you for sending me the book. It allowed me to dig into it. I went full nerd. I had my notes out because, you know, I I told another Army aviation you know pilot he flew um, Hueys that you know the the book that I judge aviation books against is Chicken Hawk by Robert Mason. You know, 
And, and that's what I do. Yeah. And I started digging in your book and I'm like, okay, this is, this is different, but in a good way. Well, it's a completely different time period. Right. Too. You know? I mean, I can't even like every, it, it's amazing. Every conflict that happens, you know, the, the next generation that comes along, things are more technologically advanced, all these things. It's like, you think back to putting yourself in those guys shoes and you're like, man, I, <laughs> I have no idea how anybody ever survived that. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So for the, for our guests, watchers and listeners and me, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself going up to joining the army, please. Sure. Sure. Uh, I'll give you a short a story as That's I can. I grew up, uh, down the road from you, I grew up on the shoreline of Connecticut. Uh, you guys are in so mass, right? Yep. 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 So uh, I grew up there. My dad was uh, an airline pilot for FedEx. Um, my mom was a Spanish teacher, middle school Spanish teacher. And uh, yeah, I went to, I wanted to do skiing and stuff like that. I, I did X game stuff on my skis when I was a kid and, and uh, I ended up going to university and uh, I went to the University of Oregon to move as far away as possible. <laughs> didn't want to be there. I mean, I don't know. I just didn't get into it. I was uh, having too much fun experiencing life and I dropped out of uh, college, did the next best thing to make parents proud as I joined a band and went on tour. Yes. So <laughs> now, what's your, what's your musical taste like, Spencer? Uh, at that time, alternative rock, like nineties, alternative rock, like nineties, early two thousands. Uh, and, uh, we, yeah, we went on tour, did some stuff, but I decided that if I want to do music, I should do it like legitimately. So I found a music school in Hollywood, California, moved there, went to musicians Institute for a couple of years and, uh, and became a professional musician, which don't make much money. And, uh, the army said, Hey, we have musicians, by the way, we'll, pay back $65,000 of your $85,000 student loans and have paying benefits and all that stuff. And it sounded like a good deal, but my dad was Navy. Both my grandparents were in the military. You know, my, my uncle was, a uh, you know, in the Navy for a long time too. So, so I'm no stranger to military and it sounded like a best way of doing things. Last music question. Like what's your preferred instrument? Uh, I'm professionally trained as a drummer. Uh, so I play drum set and then I play bass guitar and I can fool people into thinking I play piano. I just know Stu enough. Stu Ham, Billy Sheehan. You oh know. yeah, man. Stu Ham's like. Right. Oh, we're, we're on. The, yeah, he well, played bass for Satriani for a while. Right. Yeah. We're tracking, sir. We are tracking. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, so yeah, I actually joined the army as a musician. I was enlisted and I was, uh, I played drums for the 101st Airborne Division rock band, uh, for, four years, did a year in Afghanistan playing DC, ACDC and Skinner. <laughs> and then when we were in, uh, in garrison, uh, spending every weekend in Nashville. So. Now, how does a drummer from the army go to pilot one of the most advanced, you know, assault helicopters ever made that, um, that, that, that that's only, yeah. it can only happen in America. You know, in, in the military, even like, dude, like talk to civilian people about a transition like that. They'd be like, yeah, you're smoking something. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, my, while I was at Campbell, um, so my dad was a Navy pilot. Um, uh, my little brother was an air force pilot. He actually just got hired by Delta. He's flying out of New York city now. Um, and so, you know, I had, uh, you know, pictures of my wall of my family and both of them and their airplanes, flight suits and stuff. And, um, you know, I was teaching drums to this, this kid and his dad was cool. Like I was, you know, late twenties and, and his dad was like, I don't know, 
30, no, like 40, something like 41, maybe. And uh, his dad was a, a Blackhawk pilot for 160th. And he was cool. Like he would come over and hang out and, uh, and he's, he saw the pictures. He's like, dude, like you're from a family of pilots. Like, do you ever want to fly? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. He's like, all right, you're putting in a packet. Also, <laughs> he helped me drop the packet and with a senior W4 from 160th uh, letter recommendation, I, I got picked up and uh, made it through flight school, uh, was the honor grad. And then when I, uh, when I had to choose my helicopter, you know, he was pushing for me to go Blackhawks and I just thought, well, it'd be cool to be a Blackhawk pilot, but, um, and it was before they got rid of the Kiowa, the Kiowas are cool too, but I, I just figured, okay, look, no matter what I fly, they're going to put me somewhere where people want to kill me and shoot me down. So the question is when I'm in that position, do I want to have, you know, an 18 year old on a 240, you know, in a little window to help me out? Or do I want to have a bunch of rockets, missiles and exploding 30 millimeter rounds to shoot back with? And I opted for the most amount of firepower to shoot back. Yeah. So nice, nice. So you made it through high school, your first auto rotation, all the stuff that you do to become an army aviator. And yeah. the book, and ladies and gentlemen, the book is, excuse me, the book is Time of Flight. Uh, through Catacle 16 Publishing, yep. more on that later, and um, by Spencer Imsch. And so we, we, we you kind of bypass that in the book, and you start off with being in Kuwait. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I actually thought it was kind of cool you did it that way. I mean, you could have really gone over the nuts and bolts of the Apache, what it did, how it's different than other helicopters, and the platform it is, which, you know, again... <laughs> We spent a lot of time in our MOS learning how to shoot you all down. So there were certain things we had to know about the Apache versus, say, like the Cobra. But you right. kind of bypassed all that, and you went into – you're in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. and, and it was very different than Robert Mason's Chicken Hawk experience. And this is why I'm like, okay, this is cool. We're not hearing about getting off the ship and doing all this. You're essentially sitting there, it seems like, waiting for something to happen. Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess just just from a story standpoint, what's it like flying in the desert like that? Because, you know, it's very different than in the jungle or deciduous, you know, trees and everything where you, you can be seen very easily and you can see targets very easily. What was that like, especially in the heat? Well, you, you know what the crazy thing is, is <laughs> like literally our battalions from Fort Drum. So we're on the border of Canada. We spent all our time flying in six months of winter, like in the mountains, in the trees, in the forests, like in the, you know, near Whiteface Mountain and, uh, you know, and all that. So us going to Kuwait and flying in the desert, like we're, I mean, honestly, there are some things that, that, that um, easily translate. Like we, in the wintertime, we practice snow landings, whiteout landings. So, you know, we don't get spatially disoriented and, and, and crash a helicopter. It's very similar to a dust landing you know, in the desert, when you land, all the dust comes up. So you got to get on the ground before you lose sight of where you are and everything to, to be safe. Uh, and so some things translate, but the other things that don't, I mean, like flying's flying, um, but atmospheric conditions, you know, it's like really, really hot. So, you know, we're used to colder weather, even in the summertime, cooler weather where we can take off three bags of gas and you know, and load it up and not have to worry too much about what our what our power settings are. But in the summertime, especially in the heat, 
uh, of the the Kuwaiti desert and, and Iraq after that. It's like, you know, you're trading, okay, you're trading gas for munitions. Like, okay, do how much do we take less munitions so we can have more time on station? Or do we take less gas, have less time on station, but we're loaded down, you know? Yeah. And at the beginning, it, it didn't really matter because we were in Kuwait. We're, you know, it wasn't a war zone. That's like a PCS move. You know, it's it's completely dis- different. It's it's not, you know, it's they're happy to have us there and, and we're just there in case, in, just in case, you know? And, uh, and what's interesting is you mentioned why I started in the desert and, and on the deployment in the desert in Kuwait. And I was literally because when I thought about writing the book, it was that's what I was doing. I was in Kuwait in the desert walking to drop off my laundry at the laundry facility with the crappy brown sand, you know, and and I was thinking about the fact that both my grandparents were in World War or both my grandpas were in World War Two. The one was a radio man on a destroyer in the Pacific. And uh, the other one was in uh, 101st in an uh, artillery uh, battalion. He was an artillery officer in uh, the Battle of the Bulge and and all that. And I I never knew that grandfather. He's my dad's dad. He died when my dad was 13. And um, my grandpa died when I was at the University of Oregon. Uh, so I wasn't interested enough in military. I wasn't old enough or mature enough to think, to ask him about his experiences and what he went through and everything. And so I thought, well, I don't have any kids. Um, but I, I want kids someday. And if I ever have them, like, it'd be nice to be able to have something to give them so they could read about my experiences. So maybe we'll see how this deployment goes and I'll, I'll write it down. I'll, I'll write down what happens and see, you know, see if nothing happens, okay, well, then grandpa was bored as crap in Kuwait, you know, because <laughs> at that point, that's what was going on. But that's, yeah, that's where I decided to write. One of the things that I got out of the book, maybe, maybe all your readers get this, but I certainly, you know, when I read it through again for the second time, I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm making this up in my mind it is, and I think it was important for you to talk about this is every unit you know we have the army we have the marine corps and then we have the you know battalions regiments you know platoons squadrons every unit has their own attitude flavor right they're all different and it seemed like that you were for whatever reason it just didn't quite click for you you weren't really enjoying the army lifestyle or even you 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 like flying that was clear, but it wasn't, you weren't fulfilled at that time when the first part of the book, did, did I get that right? You absolutely got it right. And and the, the crazy thing is, is you can take like, you know, we we're talking about before this is like, you can take a, a unit that's great that everybody hangs out and they spend a lot of time together and, and everything's good. And then you change the commander and you change one of the lieutenants and all of a sudden everybody in that unit's at each other's throat, depending on how toxic the, the leadership environment is. Uh, that was the case at that point. In, and also we had something else going for us too, which was, you, you know, you can try really, really hard for a long time, but if nobody notices you or, or in anyone, anyone, if, 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 if there's no recognition given, 
at a certain point, those individuals are going to say, why am I doing this anymore? Like, for instance, we had something going on in our unit where uh, pilot in command of the aircraft is a title that's given. It's basically a responsibility that's given. It's not based on rank. It's not based on time and service, but it's basically based on proving yourself and your how hard you try at the unit and everything. And our battalion just was not making pilots in command. We had a lot of pilots in command, the older guys. And so all of us junior pilots, which this book's more or less about, uh, it's more about people than it is the technical. Like you, like you said, it's more about people and situations and, and describing what, what people go through on deployment than anything. But um, those titles are awarded for, you know, a, a reward for trying really hard at work and, and, and very much so at that time in our unit, um, we were not making pilot in command. And like, and, and what was going on was, you know, you, you, you have your job, which is your advertised job and most people, okay. They spend maybe 10% of their time doing their advertised job and 90% of their time doing other stuff. Right. Like all of us in the military know that. So I think at one point I had seven additional duties or eight additional duties, officer in charge of this officer in charge of that, whatever, you know, and I was doing, working really hard at the three I had. And I noticed the guy next to me was doing a very poor job. And so they would take it away from him and then they would give it to me. And then that guy would leave at three in the afternoon. And then I would leave at you know, five or six. And it's like, what's, what's the point of me continuing to try hard if all I'm doing is gaining more work for myself, fixing everyone else's problems, you know, and we're not getting recognized for these things. So by the time we were in Kuwait there, I was very much jaded on the job. You know, I, I would say that very, very much so. You know, and and the transformation happens later in the book, which you know I'll let you you get into. But well, yeah. it, it it was really interesting how that affected not only you but other pilots, but because yeah. there was no apparent pathway to progression, even right. though you you had you could demonstrate technical and you know strategic expertise with the aircraft, sure. and it it definitely comes out, and, and you know some people don't civilians a lot of them think that you know with all this leadership focus in the military that there's no way that you know talent and resources are misallocated and it's kind of hard to pull back that screen sometimes but that's the truth the u.s government tried to do an audit of the army a number of years ago and after two years of trying to audit one year worth of stuff they just gave up and we never heard about it again (laughs) right Right. I mean, it's a, it's a big machine. It's a big machine, but it, it speaks to, you know, because some people don't understand that you go to a unit and, you know, why doesn't that, you know, in my view, why doesn't, why doesn't that first sergeant like you? Why doesn't that staff and CO like you? And come to find out, at least for us enlisted guys, yeah, nothing you did wrong. No. You're a 49ers fan. He's a Cowboys fan. So you know what that colors is entire. It, it's literally that petty, right? Yeah. And it was, it was very you know, real to see that on the officer level, especially when you're in charge of the kind of machine that you're in charge of. Well, the thing about aviation that's a little bit strange and and much different than the rest of the military areas are are the fact that, okay, our unit's like, like 30 some odd people, right? Half of them are enlisted the other half are officers, right? Like you have, you have probably 12 or so warrants and, and three O grades, you know, maybe 15 warrants, depending on the, on the 
aviation company. But like, so when that happens, when you have a unit that has most of their officers are CW2s, like Chief Warrant Officer 2s, right? Well, guess what we become? We become the privates of the officer world. Nobody cares that we're officers because the unit is mostly officers. So we get, you know, it's it's like, it's it's kind of like anything. It's like the more of them there are, the less in value there are. You know? So aviation is very much like that. You know, I actually had a, a, a CW2 come up to me on that deployment. And he, and he was like, man, I was talking to your S, he was the, the camp commander or the camp, whatever mayor. And he come up to me, he's like, man, I can't believe, like, I tried to talk to your S3 and tell you guys that you, your unit has additional duties that need to be done. And he just kicked me out of there. Like, as nothing. It's like, I'm an officer, you know? And I told him, I was like, dude, how long do you have in like, how long do you have in grade as a CW2? I was like, I have like three years on you in grade and I get treated like, like, like you, you got to understand, dude, nobody, nobody cares if you're a warrant in a, you know, in a place that that is that heavily with uh, saturated with warrant officers. But it was really like, uh, like the way you did it, where you're in uh, Alpha Company, right? Yeah. And, and then you go to Bravo Company and kind of punch north. You you literally leave. Did I get that right? It's Alpha, then Bravo? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, a guy with the same qualifications as me stepped in a pothole when he's running, broke his foot, had to go to Germany. And so they uh, they pulled me up. Yep. And then my world flipped 180 degrees. I had a crew I got along with and everything was kumbaya again. What was that like? Because again, I mean, I really like the way you kind of say, you know, when I'm at this point in my life, personally and professionally, where I'm like really questioning, you know, WTF, what am I doing here? And then this happens literally on a PT run. Yeah. You're being told, Hey, you're going get, get, get ready to go. And it's like, you're playing guitar with your, you know, crewmates, you're doing this stuff. You guys are <laughs> going to get pizza. Yeah. <laughs> It is completely ice cream. Yeah. Right. Right. Completely yeah. different. And, you know, you're getting the train you want on the aircraft. So you've kind of gone through this bad part. What was it like then being in this different company? Well, I think, I think it's, it was a multitude of things altogether at the same time, because like when, even when we moved up to Iraq and I was still in alpha company, we're sitting QRF. You know, we're waiting for something to happen and not getting used because we'd already kicked ISIS out of uh, Baghdad, you know, so we're at Taji and there's nothing going on. So we're not getting called. So we're sitting 12 hours a day. Everyone's playing video games. I'm not a video guy. I'm a nerd. So I'd read or whatever. And, you know, like, and, and so everyone's already feeling like they're worthless. You know, everyone's already feeling like, why am I here? What's going on? And so besides just switching company and going to a company like, like I said in the book, like the guys in Alpha Company, most of them got along great, and they're they're all kind of like the the hunter fisherman types, you know. And like like I'm that's not me at all. I grew up like surfing and music and all this stuff, like you know. And and don't get me wrong, like we were amicable and stuff, but I just didn't find like real friendship, you know. And uh, and all of a sudden, I go up to Bravo Company, and there's a rack of guitars in the in the pilot's office, and I'm like, oh my god, like who who plays guitars? And we just had. Uh, a lot more in common. So besides that, we were also getting used. So now I'm moving to a different place. I have more in common with the people I'm there with, but also at the same time, oh, by the way, we get to do our jobs instead of just sitting there waiting around for something to happen. So, you know, you, you get the the multitude of levels of fulfillment at the at the same time. I mean, it makes your experience night and day different. So to go back to Chicken Hawk real quick, one of the things that's 
diametrically opposed from the two books and the way, uh, you know, rotary aviation was used in Vietnam versus what they did with you all is a lot of the times Robert Mason's out there and he's having to make decisions on his own yeah, and, and live with those decisions on his own right then and there. I didn't realize how managed you all were before you even, you know, kick the starter button on sure. to having your camera feeds reviewed to having to call in every action and get approval before you take that shot. And yeah, it, it, it interested me because it almost seems like a management exercise versus a combat exercise. Like, sure. like, you know, it's, it's not enough to be, you know, proficient with this machine and be able to do its job with it. You have to, you know, go through the bureaucratic layers to do anything. Yeah. Did that, was that ever like normal for you? Was there ever a time where you're like, you know what? I, I, I don't need to call back home to get approval to do this. I got the shot right now. Oh, well, there's, there's, there's some, some fundamental things that happen uh, okay. in the book that allowed that to kind of switch because at the beginning, that's how it was like when we were able to kind of fly out and do stuff. We, we were very restricted in how far we were allowed to advance until uh, I think one night the A-10s broke and then uh, they're like, okay, I guess we'll put the Apaches in and we'll see. And we did such a good job that every night after that, there were two Apaches, you know, 18 hours a day over Missoula, you know, con continuously, right? So, but before that, there, there's a couple key differences between the situations. And, and you can actually go from early days after 9-11 in Afghanistan and then Iraq and, and all this stuff. There's a big differences between that and 2016 when we were uh, with taking out ISIS and all that stuff. And, and, and the differences are, 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 are huge, right? At the beginning of the wars, Apaches went out and killed stuff. That's what they did, right? And then the wars kind of shifted from Al-Qaeda Al and Taliban to winning hearts and minds and all this stuff and being extremely worried about collateral damage and everything. And that's when the, the you know, commanders started getting scared about who's shooting what and get permission first. And, and then uh, every gun tape was reviewed and get ready to go to Leavenworth if you accidentally, like, you know, if your missile landed too far to the right or something. Like, like all that kind of stuff happened uh, between, like, you know, 2003 and 2009, right? And then um, then it kind of shifted. Like, you know, we were winding down everything. We still had troops in Afghanistan and everything. But the difference between Iraq 2016 and those early days and even later days in Afghanistan um, was 2016, we were not there. We were invited, I should say. We were invited by the Iraqis to help take out... Um, to help take out ISIS. So we were guests. So because we were not an occupying force, that's what I was looking for. Um, and there weren't many of us, uh, there was much fewer aircraft. Um, if something were to happen, the American public would lose their taste for us being there at all. And it would be pull out, like, we don't want any part of this, you know, whatever. So um, we, were, we were kept on an extremely tight leash at the beginning until we proved how effective we could be. And, and, you know, and once we proved how effective we could be, once those A-10s broke that one night or whatever, like it was, okay, no, you guys need to be in the fight 24 seven. Oh, that was it. And then after that, 
um, the leash came off. I mean, it didn't just get like loose. It, it came off. I mean, we were up there slinging missiles every night, all the time, you know, I, I mean, we were literally, uh, in, in charge of reviewing our own gun tape, you know, not just to make sure that we're keeping ourselves in check. But at, at that point it was like, no, okay, you guys are, you guys are good. We don't have to worry about you guys go out and do your thing, you know? And, and a lot of people don't understand too, that the difference with the Apache versus some of the other aircraft is, uh, we're not necessarily working with the JTAC. I mean, we were then because it was, a uh, Peshmerga and Iraqi army uh, with U.S. special forces and, and coalition special forces embedded with them. So we were always talking to, you know, a familiar uh, Five Eyes, you know, voice. But we're our own release authority most of the time. If we see something bad, we don't have to ask permission to, to, to engage. Um, Air Force aircraft are, are not like that. The A-10s can, they can get a, a rating where they can, they can, go through training to become a release authority in their own aircraft. But 99% of the time they're working with, with somebody on the ground that's guiding everything they do. We're, we have freedom of maneuver. We have freedom of, uh, you know, pretty much what we need to do to get the job done, including uh, releasing munitions off the aircraft. The pilot command is responsible for that. It was, it was just a different way of looking at it. Uh, one thing before we go to our next topic that I, I kind of, picked up on is the level of coordination like it's it's two apaches out there and one is spotting for the other one and then the other one fires you know all that radio traffic that you write about in the book to do one one shot at a target was just astounding you know sure. it, it, it's i think people get the idea that you guys are like the the firebirds movie to to go oh, back God, don't, to, don't bring up that movie don't bring that up okay i'm sorry <laughs> no, that's, oh God, that's bad it's the worst movie ever <laughs> <laughs> but but people think you're just you're just going in there and, and you know there's a interstate full of traffic and you guys just mow it down i, I mean it was kind of crazy i'm like okay you've got you know apaches flying figure eight circles over target one is spotting it with a laser and the other one is firing at it and they're doing this in tandem just just for the the, the helo nerd in me what how much train does that take to, to make it natural you know what we're really good at doing? We're really good at, at making stuff up in the U.S. military and it, like, no. going, out there, going out there with not a lot to go on and finding a way to make it happen. You know, I mean, there's a uh, there's a famous quote by a uh, a German officer in World War Two. He says the problem with fighting against the U.S. Army is uh, war is chaos and the U.S. Army practices chaos on a daily basis. I think the other one's a Russian officer in uh, the cold war and he says the problem with planning the fight against the americans is the americans don't read their don't feel the need to follow their own doctrine let alone read it <laughs> you know so um but but no i mean we practice so we practice all the time uh doing remote uh engagements where one apache is using the laser the other apache sets their missile code to it and and shoots right um we did that a lot with uh, the the UAVs, the the drones in uh, Iraq. But the the challenge was for us was it's a Missoula's a massive city, so you have the the urban canyon concept, right? So you you have these north and south running streets and east and west running streets, and like what happens if you're you got a guy and you're 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 trying to 
keep an eye on him and he's running east to west and then he turns north to south well, he, he disappears so we ended up having to do split ops somebody up north or somebody up south and somebody on the east side to be able to make sure we could cover from whatever whatever angle you know and uh so that's kind of that's kind of more or less our, our coordination in, in that kind of thing was was trying that out because it's until then for all of us it was just theoretical you know and uh and then working with the uav guys you know and that was also up until then kind of more or less theoretical uh we we kind of had a lot of firsts on that deployment really uh with with some of these engagement techniques and everything and and it just was trial and error i mean there'd be times we'd come on station and be like hey we just showed up and they're like yeah put your missile code on this we got something <laughs> you know we'd be like okay and you, you guys are cleared in you know after giving the required information back and it's like dude like okay <laughs> what are we even looking at you know and then uh yeah and we'd get the the information on the inbound and we'd see it and we'd be like okay yeah we see what you're seeing okay great yeah i mean it was it was it was in it was it took uh yeah maybe like a week or so just to get used to it but it, it wasn't like anything it's you just do enough and and uh and you, you get pretty good at it well again ladies and gentlemen the book is time of flight by steven uh not steven spencer Imch, excuse me with Tactical 16 being the publisher. Uh, and we're talking with Spencer Imsch about his uh, time in the Army in the A64 Apache. Um, real quick for people who don't know much about that aircraft, does a sure. pilot sit in front or back? So both stations have uh, flight controls. You can fly from either the front or the back. You can also shoot from either station, uh, from the front or the back. Uh, the, the difference is the main targeting system the the tads target x acquisition designation system uh the the really high quality camera is uh accessed from the front seat with the xbox handles and uh and the extra screen and so it's a uh, it's better for targeting from the front so most of the time the guy in the back is flying and coordinating with the sister aircraft you know and and uh the guys in the front seat are, are running the battle they're talking to the ground guys and, and doing the targeting and the the shooting but which, which which role did you enjoy more um i think it depended on the day honestly some days i didn't i didn't want to deal with looking through a camera and constantly switching through the settings to try and break out you know flare imagery and everything and it's just more fun to fly sometimes and um but at the same time like sometimes it's like okay you know i don't want to have to deal with thinking about all that goes into flying i'd rather you know play the video game in the front seat um, but it's not like we're trained any different. Uh, you get trained in both seats. Both both people are qualified in in the job. And you know, once you're FMC fully mission capable in both seats, uh, and you've had the training at the unit, then it becomes like, okay, we're on the flight schedule tomorrow. Do you want front seat or back seat? You know, and that's it. Yeah. Going going back to the book, um, one of the things that you sections you wrote about that I thought was like, in my view. Mm -hmm. One of the best parts of the book, but also one of the most conflicting parts of the book that I thought that, you know, us guys on the ground and especially civilians needed to see was the vampire section. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you all. Buy no. the book, read the book. But <laughs> it, it's where you all in the Apaches had to make a call. And that call resulted in very real consequences. And I'm not going to spoil it for you. You've got to buy the book, okay? <laughs> buy the book. 
<laughs> buy and read the book. So, yeah. you know, but it's, well, it's, it's, it's not just us, it's pilots in general. You know what I mean? Like uh, the, the, the medevac crew, you know, they, they could have made a choice. They were very, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to spoil it either. Not really, but basically it comes down to decision-making and sometimes it depends on what you want to do. Sometimes it depends on what your uh, command team tells you to. And, and I, the only thing I will say about that part to, to really get into it is, uh, um, when, at least at that point in our deployment, we had not regularly gone out beyond the wire yet. We had not regularly gone out and 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 shot or been part of the action. So the command team, that's part of when it was very restrictive and they were very scared of losing an aircraft and that being all over the news back home. That was the last thing they wanted. That was the ultimate worst thing that could happen. So we had a very tight leash on us and, uh, and mistakes were made and, uh, you know, things can happen and you can decide to disobey orders, but you have to have a good reason for it. But at the end of the day, it's whether or not you can live with your conscience and, and everything. And, and I wish, uh, I wish we could have done more, but from our perspective, all we could do is support the medevac crew and the medevac pilots and, make sure they were in a safe position and they were in a safe position. And I, I know those pilots will, will uh, think about that situation for the rest of their lives, you know, and uh, do you want me to go into what vampire means? Yeah. Go into what vampire means, but don't spoil yeah, yeah. it. No, no, I won't. Okay. So vampire is a call that basically uh, when you have wounded person who's coming back to uh, back to the LZ and, and the surgical team is prepped to save their life. When the uh, vampire call comes across the air, uh, back to the command uh, command group. Uh, it basically means tell the the surgeons to go from life saving procedures and getting the the operating room ready for that to uh, post mortem procedures. So it means that the 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 person in medevac died on the on the way back to to base. Yeah. Well, again, for a lot of reasons, not only do I think that was a very relevant story to tell. It, it was, for many reasons, my favorite part of the book because it showed a side of the decisions that had to be made, to your point, decision-making yeah. that, you know, many of us, once we get out of the military or we're in the military, never have to make. Right. It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and, you know, and, you know, you should have done that. You should should not have done that. Right. It's another, another matter to be there in the minute and realize you got to make a choice. And is there, there's no real train for that, right, Spencer? I mean, you, you gotta. One, one of the things, one of the points I tried to convey throughout the book, I think was, was to let people know, like, look, this book is, this book is about the people who went through this, you know, like I, I honestly didn't write it to get published. I wrote it for my future kids, you know, I mean, like I told you before, it's like 700 pages and we had to cut it down to about 350 to make it readable. Um, but the we're all just all of us who wear uniforms are like everybody else we have all the same emotions we go through all the things you have all different kinds of people a lot of a lot of family members think that they're a class clown back home you know that's always joking never serious that when they put on that uniform they become this this stoic military person and it's like dude like i've i've used gopros on too many jrtc exercises and like given the footage back to the family like 
man, that guy is just as crazy, <laughs> you know, at work as he is at home. It's like, yeah, we're we're all normal people. We all go through the same things. But the the situations we get put in as military service members, especially on deployments, are they're stressful situations. And and it's not that they're the stress is any different. I mean, yeah, it's different. But but like we're we're normal people. It's just we're we're experiencing a much higher level of uh, of emotion on all fronts you know, at any given time than you're than a person back home, per se. So like, I, I think I even make the point in the book at the beginning, I, I don't really remember exactly how I worded it, but it's just like, hey, look, like read through this, this is what we experienced. And and how would you put yourself in, you know, if you were put in that situation, think about your thought process, like, what would your thought process be? Like you said, you can armchair quarterback this all you want. But, you know, you don't know until you get put in these positions. And, and uh, just like you make mistakes in, in real life at home you make mistakes in real life in combat you know and sometimes it's your fault sometimes it's other people's fault and you know and and all i can say about that vampire situation is like man i i'm really glad that i was not flying that medevac bird you know being told what they were told and and you know and because i don't think that's i think that would have been probably the i, I don't know I, I don't even know how i would deal with that right that thought for the rest of my life you know what i mean can like you say you would have done the same thing can you say you would have made a different, different i choice? would have loved to say i would have made a different decision you yeah. know but honestly at that time i wasn't pilot in command of an aircraft or well I, I like how you let the reader you left it with the reader like you know what do you think you know and in the back of my mind it's like okay what would i have done and here's what happens if i had done that here's what happens if i don't do that and, and i think this is why it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite is you kind of let the reader make the choice in their mind as they're experiencing this with us. So yeah. I really like that. Conversely, on another side is you have the longest hellfire section, which I'm like, talk, talk about decisions. So yeah, man. Your crazy crewmates decides, does the yeah. math and does this. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, wow. I'm going to try this thing. Let's just try it. You know, it's it's really interesting, and it's because we get told what our limits are, you know, and it's like anything in life. You, you don't really know what the limits are until you try and push the boundaries of those limits. Well, he did. He did, yeah, and, and it comes down to a point. It's like, okay, you're in a place where you can make a difference. Do you go off what the book says, or do you go off of, you know, what your experience is so far? And, I mean, to to his point like we were shooting beyond our published uh max ranges you know uh effective max ranges and we understood why the ranges are what they were what the the, the technical perspective why why those were the max ranges and we learned okay yeah we can shoot a little farther but the question is like but then the question becomes well how far can we shoot and be effective you know and uh, some people were in a really bad situation and, and, and Ben took a, you know, he took a, a leap of faith in his equipment and his training and, and, oh man, I mean, like he, he proved that our machine was far more capable than we had been told, you know, and that was, that was amazing. I mean, really, really amazing. Speaking of machine excuse me right now, just popped my mind. It's on, Am it's on Amazon prime and it's mm -hmm. about, it's about a bunch of Apaches that go into Iraq and get shot to, I mean, th these things get beat up Spencer and, and yeah, they're, yeah, sure. 
I, I, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. I'm, it's just a thought. Yeah, it'd be cool. They're showing images of these things shot up, and they showed letters these guys wrote to Boeing about how re resilient this aircraft was. I mean, was there I'm, ever a time where you're like, you know what, I got a good bird underneath of me, and I'm really proud that I've, I've got absolutely, this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah? I mean, just the design itself, it's it's amazing what that, that aircraft is capable of. I mean... We uh, we have the ability to absorb a lot of small arms rounds, you know, because we're flying low at close range and everything. Uh, we're we're scared of the the big guns just like everybody else, you know. But with small arms and and some HMGs, we're we're pretty comfortable getting low, and that's why we're always low and in the fight as close as it can be to to the ground troops. This deployment was a little different because we're flying mostly up at altitude uh, because we needed the altitude for the extended ranges of our missiles, but the uh, we 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 are constantly briefed uh, with what the bird is capable of, and everybody who's an an OG at the unit who's been around a while as a W W four or whatever, you know, they'll show us pictures from previous deployments where they're like blades of bullet holes all you know all the way through them, like throughout, and and the undercarriage of the bird just completely shot to crap, and you know, and uh, we we have some systems on board that are that are awesome that are you know it's all public knowledge but you know like uh we we pump nitrogen into the gas tank so that way there's no oxygen uh to to have fumes so when we receive bullets it doesn't cause a spark and, and you know and things like that uh we have fuel tanks that, that are self-sealing and, and and everything in the case of shrapnel and so so yeah it's a it's an amazing aircraft it, it really is um there's you know, it's really funny because we always feel like we're like last on the list for upgrades and everything. And and it sucks because we look at the Air Force guys and the F-35 and their super high-tech helmet with like heads-up displays. And we're wearing like a tube TV on the side of our face. And and the problem is, is we keep making it work and are still the deadliest bird on the lowest, you know, as closest to the ground as possible. So, yeah, it's it's funny. Well, one of my top five other sections of the book that I really liked how you did this is you describe in very easy to understand layman's terms why helicopters are needed. The difference between a helicopter being able to do what it does versus the A-10, the F-35. You right. all can get closer to the fight. You can do pinpoint precision strikes, pinpoint you know close air support for a sustained period of time and you know keep the troops alive but also you know affect damage on the enemy and that's overlooked sometimes with you know some of the things that are coming out now so sure. before we go into the, the the next part is two follow-up questions do you think sure. rotary wing aviation is still needed in this day and age with all the advances made absolutely without yeah. a doubt yeah um because like you have to imagine that that the UAVs flying up at twenty thousand feet, right? They can see a lot, and they have good camera systems. They really do. However, they're at twenty thousand feet, so unless they're doing, you know, 10, 10 nautical mile, you know, radius, you know, circles around what's going on, and 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 can really break out the 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 subject to the background and see. Like, there's a lot of times where we're so low and so close. That because we're so low and so close, even though we're using FLIR, it's a much higher resolution uh, 
I wouldn't say it's a high resolution image. It's not, but we have more fidelity because as the target moves against the background, because we're lower, we're it's moving faster against the background. We're able to PID, uh, you know, positively, positively identify weapons a lot quicker. Um, kind of nefarious intent. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's, we just have a different perspective, and we're there in the moment. Um, where the UAV guys are flying around, they're sitting in a shack back safe behind the lines and everything. They're like, well, we can see it. We can kind of not see it. You know, it's it's a little different when you're there and uh, and you can pick up on things in, in a way that they they can't. And and we also everything we do, which I think is a little different than most people don't realize is everything we do is friendly centric. Um, so everything we do is about the friendlies. Hey, where are the good guys? OK, here are the good guys. Let's talk to them. Hey, guys, where are you getting shot at from? Oh, well, we're here. They're shooting at us from over there. Okay, let's look over there. Uh, we see them. Okay, we'll help you out. You know, a lot of people think that we get sent out to go, like, blow up radar sites or whatever. It's like, no, the Air Force handles all the offensive aviation stuff with the long-range cruise missiles and jets and everything. We Everything we do is in support of the ground troops, which is why Army has most of the helicopters. We are there to provide service for them, specifically for the infantry and, and everybody on the ground. So that's why the army still has a has has a primary role with with rotary wing. All right, last like helicopter, you know, book. Yeah. And then we're going to yeah. go into. You want to. <laughs> yeah. So the, so the army has the Chinook, uh, the twin rotor, you know, heavy lift helicopter. What do you think about that system? It's been around forever. Yeah, versus I the marine, a, I wanted to be a Chinook pilot, man. <laughs> it's an awesome aircraft. It is. Versus the Marine Corps Osprey. I mean, which one do you want to fly? Oh, Spencer? man, I would much rather fly the Chinook. Absolutely. There have been a litany of problems over the years with Osprey when it came out. And it's a really cool concept. And then they're like, okay, we're going to have airplane pilots fly it. And then airplane pilots have no idea how things work in a hover. And they crashed a bunch of them. And, you know, and then like, okay, maybe we should use helicopter pilots. And it's a really, really, really cool concept. However, it's not like they can, they, they're nowhere near as maneuverable as we are. On approach, it takes them much longer to get from forward flight mode to hover mode and all those kinds of things. And, and they're, they're a big bird, even though the 50, or the, excuse me, the, the, uh, the Chinook is a, is, a, is a big bird too. I mean, it's, it's able to land in, a, in, in much tighter and much kind of crazier areas than the, than the Osprey is. Uh, just because it's size, well, but I'm no, like, I, it, I like Chinook better. Yeah, it can't, it can't, you know. And, and I, I got shot down. I'm like, it can't auto rotate. And you know, I read reports where, when in in water, you know, you can't really rescue people with it because of the downforce of the rotor blades will push res rescue swimmers underneath the water. So you almost have to. It, hmm. There's a lot of problems with it. And it. That's interesting. And. When I was in the Marine Corps, I remember the one that crashed at Luke Air Force Base. I mean, we yeah. heard all about that. Um, yeah. So it, it's an interesting, cool concept, but it also kind of, you know, like, you know, the Chinook is, it may not be the sexiest to a lot of people and not the flashiest, but when you understand what it does and why it yeah. does what it does, it's a, it's a pretty amazing platform. It is, especially when it can sink its, its back end into the water and, and take up a, a rib, you know, from the special guys, like all like the stuff that that bird is capable of is, is insane. I, I love that bird. I would have flown it, but again, it was 
just the question of someone shooting at me. Do I want an 18 year old on a door gun or do I want missiles? <laughs> like the missiles. Yeah. So yeah sure. You got a little love story. We through this. Um, yeah. I like how you did that. You know, kept me wondering. And then I'm yeah. like, did, did he, did he get the girl? Did you get the girl Spencer? <laughs> Well, that's, that's the crazy part is like, you know, the funny thing is it, it, like Bree's awesome. She's, she's super cool. Like one of the coolest people I've, I've met. And, um, but like that, that happens, that stuff happens on deployment. We're all people. It's not like all of a sudden we go, we go to war and we turn off, you know, our emotions and our thoughts and in, in how we feel about other people. But like, especially like you mentioned how I felt at the beginning of the book, dude, like I was in a, in, I, I didn't have friends. I felt like an outcast in my unit. Like I felt and I found this person who was interested in similar things and was happy to talk to me. And she was kind of an outcast in her unit too, but we became really good friends and, and we spent quite a lot of time together in many ways. She saved me on that deployment. Like I really, like I was actually really depressed, you know, thinking about it after the fact, but um, yeah, it, it's amazing how just one person who cares about you in your life can, can flip that switch from being man, what am I doing here? This is terrible. I can't believe like if anything happens, I'm going to die because these people don't have any idea what they're doing or, you know, to, to, okay, well, I can take care of myself and I can take care of the things that I know keep me sane. And like, like, it's just amazing how, how one person being close to can, can do that, you know? And, uh, and, and yeah, we've, we've hung out before and everything. Uh, she just recently got married, but it wasn't, about that it's just uh in the moment it's she's who i needed you know and i was who she needed and we had a a, a close relationship for that that time and it's amazing because it's like that's that saved us both in that in that time period really that was really cool you didn't go too mushy on it but you yeah. let the reader kind of make up their own mind i thought it was pretty cool yeah yeah so, for sure so you, you talk about coming back home and some of the challenges around that and that you know there's a perception out there that officers and warrant officers have it easy when they get out of the military. Um, and I found out over time that that's not necessarily the case. Some officers have a tough time too, just like us enlisted. You, yeah. you get out um, and now you're doing all this other kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> like like I, I'm, I'm like, okay, I thought for sure you'd be, you know, working at some airport doing you know chartered private helicopter flights for people but you're not <laughs> no no you're not you're not you're not even close spencer no no i live on the other side of the world man <laughs> right i mean it's it's 11 o'clock here was it almost eight o'clock where you are uh it's about about to be seven yeah about seven so yeah. what what are you doing ladies and so, gentlemen, he's, he's in romania talk about yeah i live in in bucharest romania yeah you 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 hit on something very clear and that's getting out of the military number one it doesn't matter who you are if you don't have a plan getting out of the military it's going to go badly for you right the uh, the command sergeant major of my sf what we call sfl tap basically the the course that you go through to help you transition to civilian life before you get out he, he told me something because i we were able to do it a year out basically from when we get out uh he, he said something to our class which was if your unit thinks you're doing a great job in the year before you get out, you're setting yourself up for failure. When you get out, you're going to, you have not taken enough time for yourself to figure out your life and your plans and everything. If your unit thinks 
you know, you've fallen off the, the horse and, you know, and you don't care about them anymore, you're probably doing a good job taking care of yourself, getting ready to transition. <laughs> and, and and it's true, but like I got out and uh, a lot of people who aren't in aviation don't know, but there's a global shortage of airline pilots, something like uh, eight. 80,000 airline pilots in the next 10 years, the, the world will be short. My dad is an airline pilot. I saw that lifestyle. So I was like, hey, I, yeah, for the first time in history, the airlines were hiring military helicopter pilots and paying for their transition to airplanes. So I was like, yeah, get me on board that for sure. Um, you mean I'm actually going to get paid just to be a pilot and I get 20 days off a month? That sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And travel for free. So uh, I went through the transition, pro I got out, I went through the transition program, learned how to fly airplanes, and then uh, COVID hit. And they said, sorry, we're not hiring anybody because we're shutting down all the flights. <laughs> so I, I went and I lived with my mom for a year, dude. <laughs> like, you, uh, our Army officer, I lived with my mom for a year, you know, just because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was like, do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Um, my wife is is Romanian. Uh, she works for, for NATO. And, uh, and so she was like, Hey, like I'm friends with a lot of Romanian air force pilots that got out and flew for like blue air, Ryanair, whatever, like, you know, European airlines, uh, low cost airlines. She's like, maybe I can get you a job. Okay, cool. Like, let's see. And, uh, yeah. So I got hooked up with an interview and, uh, they're like, yep. Yeah, okay, cool. Like, yeah, let's hire you. That's cool. Come move to Romania. And, and she's from Romania, you know, so like her family's out here and I've been a bunch of times. So like to me dude like walking around transylvania is like walking around the woods of massachusetts or connecticut like it's on the same latitude same trees feels like home you know it's uh it's just take all of new england and get rid of 90 percent of the people it's awesome it's amazing yeah and and mountains that match the that are on par with like the rocky mountains basically the carpathian mountains so it's uh it's awesome and i was like yeah let's go to romania i'm i'm down for an adventure you know after anyone who's been overseas will know that like after two and a half years of your life in iraq or afghanistan pretty much anywhere else in the world seems pretty peachy so um yeah let's let's do it so we move over here and then after we move over here a couple months later they're like covid we're not hiring anybody <laughs> yeah and through a conversation at a bar uh like i grew up skiing and snowboarding at, at a pretty high level and um I heard somebody say the word heliski. It's like, oh, heliski. You have heliskiing in Romania, you know? And I was like, Inglesa? Like, hey, do you speak English? He's like, oh, of course I do. And it turned out to be the lead guide for a heliski company. And uh, I was interested as a client. I just, hey, how much does it cost? What do I have to do? Like, who do I contact? And, and you know, two beers later, he's like, what do you do? I was like, oh, I fly. I'm a pilot. He's like, helicopters? Like, yeah. He's like, we need a helicopter pilot. So. I spent all last season, all last winter with uh, Heliski Romania. Um, and I spent a lot of time on the ground on skis too, unofficial photographer, unofficial guide, just kind of extra eyes on the mountain. And uh, the rest of the year, I kind of fly private uh, airplanes and helicopters for people. I got my EASA licenses, uh, FAA converted over to European. And um, and in order to get paid as, a, as, a, as an expat, I had to start a an equivalent of an LLC to get paid business to business. The tax advantages are amazing. Um, and I had a company, so I'm like, oh, maybe I should do something with the company. And so now I, my company does work in action sports here in Romania. 
So I spend all my time flying and playing in the snow on the black sea, surfing, things like that. Yeah. So you're getting paid to do what you do for free. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, man. Now, heliskiing is where they take the skiers up in the helicopter and they jump out of the helicopter and ski downhill. Off the top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. And some pretty serious backcountry training. That's what you would believe by watching movies. But in all reality, uh, if you're an intermediate level skier or snowboarder, uh, most heliski companies around the world have terrain. That's that's their primary primary uh Primary audience, uh, primary clients are intermediate to advanced level skiers or snowboarders that are comfortable in in. It's just like any 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 slope you'd have on a ski resort, except it's just not groomed. It's it's powder snow and it's completely to yourself and your friends, which is amazing. Yeah. Just a quick helicopter question. So the air density and and high altitude is less than at sea level, right? So is there any challenges flying at a higher altitude? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what limits us in our ceiling with the uh, helicopters. Um, they're obviously not as efficient as airplanes. Airplanes want to fly. The forward thrust is what makes them fly. Helicopters re require into what beating the uh, the sky into submission to, <laughs> to climb. Uh, but no, for for heliski, it's it's amazing what uh, modern technology does. We fly a uh, 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 Airbus H125 or if it, the Eurocopter AS350. Uh, um, B3E, uh, and that is the only helicopter that's ever landed on the summit, summit of Everest, you know, 29,000 some odd feet, uh, and stayed there for about three minutes, took off again and, and flew down. But that, that bird has actually made it up to like, I think the record is 43,000, something like that. So wow. yeah, as high as the, the airliners fly basically. Yeah. So you're doing all this and you know, you, you, you're, you're now in Romania. Oh yeah. Which makes you like my, you're rare. You're, you're an international guest officially, which is pretty oh, cool. Oh yeah. That's cool, man. Right on. And then you decide to write the book. How did you get hooked up with tactical 16 publishing? Because there's a really interesting story here and you know, I, I like what they do. How'd that happen? So for those who don't know, tactical 16 publishing is a, uh, alternative to self-publishing. Right, you can self-publish your own manuscript and put it on Amazon. And by the way, Amazon takes like sixty percent of your profits. So heads up, <laughs> uh, that's not really well advertised before going into it. But um, on my last deployment, the deployment I actually met my wife on uh, before we got entangled, we kept in touch for a couple of years. Um, my CW five buddy, who was uh, my colleague, my coworker uh, in Kabul. We were in the the sea jock there and um he just said hey like i found this publishing company it looks pretty cool like they they're based out of colorado springs we we're at fort carson in colorado and uh i don't know if he he was friends with the ceo on linkedin or something like that but he's like hey you were talking about writing your book you should check it out dude you know and i was like yeah maybe maybe i will and long story short a couple of years later i ended up uh talking to them and they liked the idea um, and they turned out to be an awesome, an awesome company, like as an alternative to self-publishing, um, you know, if you publish yourself, you, you accrue all the costs, right? You accrue the costs of designing a cover, you know, an editor, all that stuff. If you seek one out, uh, they're just a service provider. And so they help you with their connections to editors, to, uh, online sales and all this stuff, marketing and everything. And, um, it's pretty awesome. 
it was a great process. They're wonderful to work with. And uh, what's what's interesting, I think, is a lot of people have a story. Every veteran I've ever met has a story to tell. They We all have war stories, whether or not they're from actual war or, or not. But like the, the stuff veterans go through is absolutely crazy. I mean, your war story could be black mold in the, the barracks in one of these antiquated army bases that should have been upgraded like 100 years ago, you know, and and uh, and they're really interesting stories. And most people don't write them down. They just, you know, have the story and they tell the story over beers, however many times. And but what's crazy is like when you actually write down your story. Um, it's amazing what you remember that you'd forgotten. And the more you remember. You're like, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Oh, that's worth remembering. And then it, that leads to another thing and another thing and another thing. And before you know it, you have 700 pages like I did. Um, but, yeah, but no, it's it's crazy. And um, the process was, uh, dude, I hated writing. I, I absolutely hated writing. I wrote more for that book than every single paper I've ever done for school combined in my entire life. And what's crazy is through the process, I found out how therapeutic writing can be, uh, how much I enjoyed it, how much of a, um, an exercise it is for the, the muscle, the, the muscle that is your brain, you know, like any other muscle, you need to work it. Um, and it was, it was a great experience for me. So I, I highly recommend to anybody who has any kind of story, talk to the guys at tactical 16, talk to them about your plan, what your story is about and, and just start writing. And all you have to do is just write one thing and it leads to the next thing and you can arrange it later. The writer's block is, is, I, I don't, I don't know if I believe it or not, but just write the first thing that comes to mind. Cause it'll lead to the next thing. You, you can organize it later. That's what editors are for. How can people get this book? Please go to tactical 16 publishing, okay. uh, their website, and look under their authors page or their products and you can search my name and I will be there. And I okay. say that because it supports a veteran owned business first and foremost as a veteran owned publishing company. Uh, you might get exposed to some other cool books worth reading, but also just to be perfectly honest, it's how you help me out the most. You know, uh, like I said before, Amazon takes about 60% of your profits, but Tactical 16, their, their store is uh, the best way to support us in uh, our endeavors so i i'd appreciate if people bought there i will have the link to your um book page on tactical 16 in the oscar mike radio show post and you know all the, the social media stuff you, you gotta check it out it's a really great story and different perspective on not only military aviation leadership and just you know how life works so look i i just could sit here for the next six hours and talk to you just about you know starting up the apache much less flying it i really had a good time you know getting to know you and appreciate what you did here because you know i think to your point is there's a lot of stories that never get told because people don't think they have value and i certainly got a lot of value out of your books so i want to say thank you i appreciate it thank you very much for having me awesome awesome so the, the book again is time of flight by spencer imsch you can get it on Tactical 16 Publishing's website. I will have the link there. I will also, Spencer, have the links to your Expat Jack website, which is, yeah, Expat Jack, got that right. 
So I made that. The funny thing about that is I made that as like a, to have something to give because I like I moved to Romania, dude. Like I had no idea what to expect. So I was like, I need to have something that like people can check out. Maybe they want to hire me for some kind of consulting or something. But yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, what I'm thinking this. I'm saying that just I'm yeah. thinking Samurai Jack, Samurai Jack. No, it's not Samurai Jack. It's Espac Jack. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking you know, Samurai. Being an expat and then kind of a jack of all trades, you know, like that's where it comes from. Well, uh, nice. Actually, the 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 real thing I'm working on is called Ride Tribe Romania, and that's that's kind of a little bit more. But I'll, I'll give you I'll give you all that stuff, man. It's it's funny. Awesome, awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for checking out this time with Spencer Emch, Army aviator, uh, rider, uh, businessman, and pilot. And Spencer, thank you for your time here on Oscar Mike Radio. Please Thanks check out the book at Tactical 16 Publishing. And uh, as we say, um, well, when we're firing at helicopters, uh, Spencer, we say missile in flight. But at Oscar Mike Radio, we say missile in flight. Thank you. Oh, again. Okay. So we, we always talk back and forth to the JTAC. When we sign off station, we say, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the, the missile, the, we hit the, the, the lieutenant or captain hits the button to fire the missile. Yeah. Me, the radar operator, will say missile in flight. Missiles okay. on the way to target. So I made a play on that. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll see you guys later. Thanks again. And um, stay frosty. Thank you for listening and watching Oscar Mike Radio, where our active duty service members and veterans are in action and the mission is in flight. If you are a veteran or know a veteran who needs help, please dial 998 and press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line.